0: That's Debatable is sponsored by MBG. MBG are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. So Ben, I'm speaking from the centre of London after a fourth week of uh, slightly crazy Saturdays. I have to say that I have now changed my routine on a Saturday uh, because I'm so central here that um, I've avoided going into the centre of London to go swimming because I never know which tube train or which station might be overwhelmed with protesters and uh you know it, it it's affecting people, I think there's a straight I was talking to someone in a shop, and there's a strange atmosphere on Saturdays now and I, and the gentleman behind me in the shop said, "Oh yeah, be careful, be careful. There's a sort of um a frenetic feel in the air every Saturday. It seems to be getting worse um, but um, how was your weekend <laughs>
1: Well, I was going to ask you about this, Tom, about how much it's actually impinging on day-to-day life, because watching it from the provinces, you see these very startling images of train stations being occupied for an hour or two, uh, and chants in uh, tube carriages and that sort of thing. But it's difficult to get a sense of how visible that feels actually on the streets living your day-to-day life in London so I mean for instance I was at church house at battle of ideas that we talked about last time uh, a fortnight or so ago now Um, and spilling out of there at the end of the day I was aware having looked on twitter there was this huge demonstration outside Westminster Abbey going on Um, so I was just down you know just just around the corner from it um, and didn't actually see anything there Uh, things have moved on or I'd I'd just gone a slightly different way or whatever Um, but there is that feeling in London on Saturdays that you've picked up?
0: I think so. I was in the same uh, day with you, actually, and, and had a supper appointment, a dinner appointment, uh, up at uh, the other end of the Strand. And that would have meant I would have needed to have walked straight past Downing Street, up Whitehall, and then along the Strand mm. to where the Lion King, just opposite Lyceum Theater, the Lyceum Theatre, where the Lion King's showing. And I spoke to a police officer in Parliament Square, and he said, yeah, go go round, because although they're dispersing, uh, there are crowds that are coming to Downing Street. Uh, they, were, they were outside Downing Street. They were going to come down to Parliament Square. And that was about 6.30 in the evening. So it is disruptive for any of us who are trying to get into the centre of London. And it is a real edgy feel. that It seems to be getting worse week by week by week. Um, and of course, there's been a lot of talk about this, hasn't there, uh, Ben? We were going to talk about um, the latest uh, discussion um, from, is it Michael Gove who's, t- who's talked about this? Um, yeah, it,
1: it's his department. Um, and it, it's this proposal that was reported first in the Guardian uh, of essentially broadening the definition of extremism. Um to encompass well i'll read the direct quote shall i say it's an attempt to overturn or undermine the uk's democracy its institutions and values or threaten the rights of individuals or create a permissive environment for radicalization hate crime and terrorism so obviously that's a formula that's designed to respond to the events of the last month um about which i think as you say there is there is widespread concern and indeed revulsion from some of what's been seen, certainly. Um, But I I think that listeners will have already anticipated, I think, where we're going to go with with expressing our concerns about this, because, of course, we're about a year away, almost certainly, from having a change of government. And I think, for us, Tom, when, when when we've been talking about this, the idea of undermining the UK's values as being an example of extremism. I mean, I know what what Britain's history and its values are. I'm not sure that I could codify it very well. But the problem is that whether it's two years or 20 years from now, there's going to be a different Home Secretary in place. And anyone who falls foul of the values of the current year is going to find themselves... I think dealt with pretty severely as an extremist, potentially, under this definition.
0: And, uh, and that definition mentions values. It also says that uh, it would capture anyone who threatens the rights of individuals or creates a permissive environment for radicalization, hate crime, and terrorism. And the one that worries me there, Ben, is hate crime, which we talked about before, yeah. because... Hate crime definitions are already being abused. Things are being captured in that net. And it's closely related to the point about values. In many ways, things that we would have thought of as British values are now being (laughs) recast, in some instances, as hate crimes. And so um, creating a permissive environment for hate crime, it occurred to me, actually, because there was a... Another article over the weekend written in The Telegraph about how The Guardian and the BBC got swept up in a wave of anti-Semitism. And uh, it's an interesting article. And I think, again, it would resonate with a lot of our listeners and a lot of our members. Uh, But, of course, if you marry together The Guardian article and The Telegraph article, would The Guardian and the BBC themselves fall foul of that new definition? by virtue of the failure of the BBC to call Hamas terrorists, and by virtue of the BBC um, uh, immediately calling out the the airstrike on the hospital as uh, being uh, from the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, Uh, and later shown that 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 most likely was not the case, that creates a permissive environment then for hate crime against Jews on the streets of London. So surely this new definition would capture not just... um, uh, people like our members who come to us, but actually some of, our, some, of our, some of our institutions that we have been talking about in prior weeks. It just doesn't work as a definition, I don't think.
1: And none of this is hypothetical because we've already seen the direction of travel when you look at the PREVENT program, which was designed uh, squarely aimed at Islamist extremism. And of course, there's such official sensitivity to Islam to Islamism, to investigating what's going on in mosques where extremists are inciting violence and so on there's such hesitation and awkwardness and reserve and concern about social cohesion and all of this sort of stuff that prevent has ended up getting to the point where it's 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 being used to refer teachers who have slightly uh, conservative views about gender self identity or problematic Uh, in inverted commas, views about gay marriage or whatever. Um, And this was the case of Dr. Bernard Randall uh, at Trent College in Nottingham in 2019 that was reported uh, in the Mail on Sunday and elsewhere, I think, as well. Um, And uh, he he was referred to prevent as a radicalisation risk for expressing orthodox Christian conservative views about about these issues. Um, And it just seems to me abundantly obvious that any attempt to widen the definition of extremism however firmly focused it is by this government on islamist extremism it is going to encompass all sorts of people who express heterodox or socially conservative or unpopular views on any number of issues i mean if you look at this strand uh, of the definition of creating a permissive environment for radicalization and hate crime that could very easily be used to capture the gender critical movement for instance you could very easily make an argument that that movement had been radicalizing women to motivate hate against trans people of course that's that's complete rubbish um, but a home Secretary who didn't feel friendly towards that movement could make such an argument quite clearly i think under this definition so it's very troubling
0: And I think what we're running up against here is uh, a really difficult conundrum, a really difficult nut to crack, which is an inherent problem with free expression. That free expression and the marketplace of ideas works very well, generally, but when it is uh, coming up against a group in society who fundamentally want to use free expression to undermine free expression or to use liberal values to undermine liberal values or to use the tolerance that comes with free expression to undermine tolerance and become intolerant and create an environment of intolerance. What do we do with free expression then? It's built into free expression as an inherent weakness, almost like an Achilles heel that It works very, very well, but it can be got at. Uh, It has that inherent weakness. However, as I was thinking in the week about that, I thought yes, it is an inherent weakness. It is an Achilles' heel of free expression, and it's not the first time it's been thought about or discussed. Uh, The greatest minds, uh, the greatest liberal minds, have pondered on on that um, a lot. I mean, J.S. Mills describes um a garden, liberal values as being a garden within which all of these values can be can be thrashed out um but that doesn't that still has this problem of of of, of um uh, intolerance. How do we deal with that? but in other ways, I think it's also like all great problems, has within it its own solution and you you've touched on this in the past, ben, which is that um yes it it It's a problem, but also it the the environment of free expression brings out these worst elements into the light. So ultimately, it they can't hide anymore. The intolerance can't hide anymore. The intolerance uh, is clear for all to see, and the the extreme nature of the intolerance towards British values is clear for all to see. So, yes, I think it's a weakness of free expression. I think it's a weakness of liberal values but ultimately push it a little further, I think it can also become uh, the solution and a strength again. But it's not as glib as that, I don't think. Uh, And I know I need to do more thinking on it. I don't actually uh, know the answer to, to any of this. But it seems to me that built into free expression, there is this problem and that's what we're effectively dealing with. But this legislation doesn't seem to be the way to deal with it.
1: In terms of the practicalities of how the Free Speech Union operates and helps our members, and and decides what we're going to do to assist in any particular case if somebody's contacted us, we do have a statement of values, and it says in there we expect our members not to restrict others' freedom of speech, um, which grounds us firmly within that same Enlightenment tradition. Um, th- th- there's an example of this. Obviously, there's there's this debate going on about the march that is being planned. For Remembrance Day weekend, because of course it'll be the two days this year, um, and and I saw Matt Goodwin had made the argument on Twitter a few days ago of let people see the damage to sacred monuments, let them hear the chants, let them see how ungovernable our multicultural society is becoming. That that was his view of it, and I can see that argument. Um, I think the trouble with it as a as a tactic is that there is every chance that for tens of millions of people who don't use Twitter, who are not avid social media users, who get their news from BBC, six o'clock bulletin, um, that there will be no sign of these disturbances taking place. And so control of that, uh, what, what was the phrase used? The broadcasting ecology. That's it, wasn't That's it? That's right. The broadcasting Delicate broadcast
0: ecology. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so we, we see here that um, th- that system is able to restrict control manipulate shape what what people understand to be taking place in britain and indeed around the world um, and th- this is this is a sort of view i think that five years ago perhaps many people would have found conspiratorial but it really only takes an inspection of the bbc homepage and then comparing it with what what's actually going on in these marches or um in gaza and in israel to substantiate the very, very deep unease that I think people should now have about the BBC's reporting. And so that is the argument with the liberal argument you've just sketched out, that Matt Gooden made as well, that, you know, let people see how bad things are, let people see what, what the divisions in society are. Um, I mean, it's it's fine as a statement of, of liberal philosophy, but I, I'm not sure it necessarily works as a practical solution.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Because I think there's every chance that people won't actually be allowed to see how bad things are.
0: It's an interesting additional item to add to the thought process, I think, Ben, that, that we're being not directly lied to, I suppose, but we are having things that are, are kept away from our television screens. Um, and I think it goes back to all of the discussion we've had on the mainstream mainstream media versus the new media. And it feels like, all of these threads, cultural threads of what's happening in the United Kingdom and has been happening for some time are coming together. The way that the the, the information revolution we're going through, uh, I've heard it described as the sixth information technology revolution, the first being the creation of um, the alphabet uh, many, many thousand years ago. And I'm not going to name the other, the other four or five, so I can't remember <laughs> them. The but In essence, the world goes slightly crazy whenever there is an information technology revolution. The world doesn't quite know what to do with that revolution. Uh, You've got the people who go around uh, trying to ban books or ban pamphlets or suppress the publishing of the Bible at various times and various places. However, ultimately, a new... Um, normal is discovered. And I was thinking about it yesterday, Ben, because with social media, I can't remember exactly when Facebook, which I think was one of the first platforms for social media, came out. I got on it in 2008. I was late. I think it was around 2004, around that time. That is not long ago. That's less than two decades ago that we have had social media. And now think about, so that means that both you and I our most formative years, certainly me, we lived without it. Um, and that's a huge yeah. blessing, I feel, for me. I, 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 I can step away from it. But I also feel it's control over me. I feel it's control over me through Instagram, through Facebook, through uh, the way it works. I don't know how to use it yet. I find my blood pressure going up because of what the algorithm is showing me. And I can't control that. Not, I, can, I mean, I can't, I can't control my blood pressure, but I also can't control what the algorithm is showing me. I feel we are, we're wrestling with um, a piece of technology that we don't yet know how to handle as a society. At the same time as we're dealing with a multicultural um, inheritance and issue that's coming to the fore, so it's a very, very uncertain time, um, and and I have no more answers than that, Ben. Well, I'm glad that there are
1: new broadcasters breaking up the monopoly um, of mm. uh, of news media. Is what I'd say. Um, I think that's I think that's really important, and it's really important that there are um, reputable, reliable, new competitors in that in that marketplace because you don't want it just to be left to the fringes. There
0: has to be a GB News, a Talk TV. I think they're really important, um, and and there are wonderful voices. Aren't there from beyond the grave? Even I've been listening to a lot of Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs speeches from well before any of this um, you know, Israel-Palestine conflict um, blew up again. Because he's been, he's been. I think he died in ni- in twenty nineteen. So, but he, all of his speeches, many of his speeches, are, um, are are available on YouTube, and that would be the same for any great wise voice. Uh, are available and they speak to today and to today's problems. So there are huge issues, but there are huge uh, golden um, uh, coins within that or pieces of gold, golden threads that we can go back to and draw from. So I agree with you. The new media is actually, um, as well as a, a concern in some ways, is a, of huge benefit to those of us who, who want to think about things in, in different ways.
1: And it's also great for exposing what's going on. I mean, I just I think the final point for me on this topic um, was a tweet from We Are Fair Cop, um, who exposed that uh, the Met Police leadership program facilitator and project manager, a so senior bureaucrat in in the Metropolitan Police, had said on LinkedIn uh, that it should be quote investigated as extremism um, if anyone supports Israel's actions in Gaza. Obviously, that's a subject that uh, excites huge controversy and, and strong opinions on each side. Um, but the, the idea that, that, that police bureaucrats are saying that that should be investigated as extremism, I think, shows very clearly the danger of of broadening the definition of extremism and, and heading down that path. Um, and I think that probably leads us on to the next item we want to talk about, uh, which is entirely different it's this question of uh, transparency in schools and whether parents have the right to access lesson plans and materials in sex education and so on that that schools are using um and we're going to talk about the case of a uh, FSU member called Claire Page who has been battling away on this issue and i think when we describe her her story and what's been going on you'll see exactly the danger of somebody like her potentially if somebody taking a different view uh, than uh, than a school on something like gender self ID or what's appropriate in sex education, you know, broadening these definitions and and uh, sucking up more and more people uh, into this rubric of of having extreme views, I think, is immensely dangerous. And so, Tom, what's she been what's she been doing? She's been yeah. she's been battling away, hasn't she? Yeah,
0: it all started when her own daughter, Claire Page's own daughter, came home from school. And the daughter reported that uh, she'd had a sex education les- lesson, ostensibly about consent, which had in fact taught her about heteronormative that heteronormativity is harmful. All these new words are quite difficult to say. Ben, heteronormativity is harmful. Uh, sex positivity is a good thing. Uh, she was understandably concerned. Um, yeah, even at fifteen, yes, you need to know. Um, the, the facts of life. I was taught the facts of life. I remember the biology lesson very clearly. Um, but the new uh, sort of versions that come into this sex education are, are worrying. Um, and indeed, the Education Act 1996 imposes a duty on schools to prevent political indoctrination and to secure a balanced treatment of political issues. Um, so, what, what 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 Claire Page did is she put in a freedom of information request. That was actually denied, and and I think many listeners will be aware of this um, uh, sort of defense as to why a freedom of information request is denied, which is that uh, the material was deemed commercially secret or sensitive, um, and they also wanted to protect the privacy of the teacher. I have a little bit more sympathy with protecting the privacy of a teacher, although I'm not sure why um, the material that's being taught uh, comes into play there. Um, and then interestingly, the information commissioner commissioner's office backed the school's choice to deny the freedom of information request, and um that was a landmark case um but but a worryingly a worrying landmark case because clearly that is saying that the pe- te- parents don't necessarily get access to this material and so what uh, Claire Page is now doing, she's appealing that um Decision at a first-tier tribunal, and the aim is to establish a rule that lesson resources should be fully accessible uh, to parents, and commercial interests should not override the rights of parents. So she's got a legal crowd-funder. We'll put the uh, the link to that legal crowd-funder in the show notes. But it's really um, heartening to see a member of the FSU uh, taking this on and really pushing a decision that seems quite perverse that parents' rights can be overruled by commercial rights. Um, so, but your point is well made, Ben, that <laughs> there would be someone with an axe to grind who might argue under a broader, broader version of extremism that, are, that opposing this new um, sort of sex uh, ideology uh, is a version of extremism. And I can see that argument being made by people who, who are out to get parents looking to see these materials.
1: Yeah, you could you could say that that such parent was trying to deny their child rights, uh, or was trying to incite uh, hatred against uh, sexual minority groups or whatever. There, there, there's a whole range of different options you could use if you wanted to cause trouble for a parentless. I mean. <clears throat> I have to say, my my, uh, my daughter is not of an age where I yet have to worry about these things, but mm. uh, reading about the material that Claire Page's daughter was being taught about at the age of 15 in school, you would go absolutely nuclear. Um, and this is one of those issues where perhaps 10 years ago, objecting to what was being taught in sex education or withdrawing your child from sex education would have marked you as being a religious conservative Many would have, I think, regarded you as being a religious crank or a fanatic of some kind. Um, and now, actually, I think that that secular parents who don't have any religious sentiments whatsoever would find very objectionable material, yeah. um, as indeed Claire Page has done, um, and would would feel motivated to resist it. Um, but I mean, the the, the, uh, the Information Commissioner, the you know, the idea that the um, the rights of the business yeah. to their copyright should trump the rights of uh, parents to see what their children are being taught about sex education how on earth have we got there uh, completely ludicrous i mean yeah god bless her and all, all strength to her for going on going on the warpath as she has and hopefully she'll be she'll be successful at the next stage
0: i've got a question ben you, you you may be better placed to answer this question because you're a parent but um i would draw a distinction between uh, primary school indoctrination and secondary school indoctrination. I think both obviously fall foul of, or potentially fall foul of the requirement not to indoctrinate, but to provide a balanced view. But I would go nuclear if I were a a father. Certainly I'd go nuclear at primary school level because I feel that you've got people who are, they believe everything an adult says at that age, everything. They're they're just going to take that as read. They're not going to have yet worked out the critical thinking that a teenager is starting to do and starting to debate and starting to see that there are multiple dimensions to multiple problems in life. So um, that would be a distinction I would draw. Would you agree with that, Ben? Yes,
1: I think at primary school, schools are more susceptible to this ideology through... uh, I mean, for instance, if you look at at a Church of England school, lots of the ethos has been entirely secularized and it's been watered down to just being nice to everybody to being tolerant to being inclusive and all, all that sort of thing um, and of course that offers many vectors for people to try and insert this ideology into a range of teaching material um, because of course you can package all of these things up as they have been after for many years in terms of um, tolerance and just be kind and all that kind of thing so i think primary schools and perhaps even particularly church schools are susceptible to to to, the, to that sort of soft form um, of politically partisan teaching. And then I think when you get to secondary school, I mean, w- listeners will remember the cat gate story of, uh, I think, a 14-year-old girl who had objected to the idea that one of her classmates should be treated as a cat um, because she identified as a cat. You know, once you get to the point where teachers are indulging that kind of thing, or actively encouraging it it really does unfortunately fall to parents to uh just have to fight back against that of course things when you're a parent you know you just don't have the time you do not have the time to be checking over what your child is doing in every lesson and to be writing to the information commissioner to get access to lesson plans and all the rest of it it takes an immense amount of time to do any kind of activist work like that it's really time consuming it will eat up months of your life um and the, the trouble is all, all of these things just rely basically on people not caring enough or being too busy or just kind of, you know, shrugging and thinking, Well, you know, that's, that's, that's not really true, but you know, I don't have time to, to sort of fight back about it. Or I'm a bit worried about what other parents will think of me if they do. And will they think I'm a bigot or some sort of religious nutcase or something. Um, and all of these kind of, you know, t- t- tedious day to day things just get in the way. Um, so I think that's why I I admire, um, admire her efforts so much because it, you know, it is difficult. Um, and to keep fighting on against this um, mm. is really commendable.
0: I, I agree with that, Ben. Uh, people have their lives to live and their lives are complicated. Yeah. Their lives are stressful. Their lives are exhausting. And, and adding something in can be, the, it's not even the straw that breaks the camel's neck. It's not back, sorry. Yeah. It's, not, it's not even on the on the table. But I thought that might actually be a good moment, Ben, to talk about the, um, something we talked about last week which is the conversion, gender conversion therapy um, yeah uh, issue that this this new legislation is is potentially coming back we thought we thought that legislation um had been killed but it's it's coming back and uh it, we talked about it at some length last episode but that as a reminder to our listeners um we have a right to your MP tool uh which we will put again put a link in on the show notes to enable listeners and, and members to write to their MP and oppose um, this uh, gender conversion therapy ban, uh, which would, in essence, again, potentially criminalize parents who just want to have a quiet conversation with their child who may be going through a, a period of confusion, um, or, or even uh, someone in authority who, who wants to sit down with a child, uh, you know, a therapist, for example, and say, you know, is this really what you want do you really think you're a, a girl in a boy's body or, or or the other way around and and talking therapies may get banned as a result of that and and so um we're, we're encouraging our members to uh, write to their mp um to oppose that
1: and it's very straightforward it, it won't eat up months of your life to do that just a, a <laughs> click on the website and uh, and you can you can do it. Uh, Tom, you were uh, you want to talk to us about protecting the rights of indigenous people, don't you? Which I see in the notes here, and I thought perhaps you'd join the English Defence League or something, but it's,
0: it's not that at all. Not that at all. You're talking
1: about Australia <laughs> and uh, and the referendum.
0: Yeah, it's something that um, I've been thinking about quite a lot, and certainly have been reading about um, over the last few weeks. It's been rather uh, swamped, certainly in in our news cycles here in the UK, with with the Israeli Palestine um war that's going on but this is all, it's also a good opportunity to remind australian listeners um, that we have just set up a free speech union not in, in australia so uh, do do have a look um investigate that and 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 support that initiative it's a sister organization of us here in the uk um but i really wanted to come back to this um voice referendum outcome, uh, which uh, took place on the 14th of October, 2023. And the voice uh, was a proposal to amend Australia's constitution to recognize First Nations people and to create a body for them to advise the government. And uh, there were a lot of things that happened during this that resonated with me so much because they reminded me of the Brexit referendum. And actually, I think it's quite interesting uh, that we're now f- two or three weeks since the outcome of the referendum, which was it was roundly rejected. The voice was roundly rejected uh, that there should be no change to the Australian Constitution um, to allow this to happen. Uh, but there would now been two or three weeks since then when a lot of things that happened after the Brexit referendum in the UK have happened after the Voice referendum in Australia. And the examples I would, I would give is that there have been accusations of racism, uh, that uh, no, no voters, people who voted against this, are being branded as racist. Uh, there have been accusations from during the uh, referendum campaign of misinformation and disinformation. Um, during the referendum campaign, uh, the corporate world was taking a view uh, on this political referendum, this political stance. I think I, I, I looked, I, before the, we started recording, I went back and had a look at the corporate names in Australia that had supported the yes vote. It was Qantas, the big four banks in Australia, BHP, the mining giant, Rio Tinto, the mining giant, Coles, Woolworths, Telstra. I mean, the list goes on and on. All of these companies, in essence, coming out before the referendum result and saying, we want uh, Australia to vote yes for this change in the Constitution. Um, And also I thought something that was a little worrying was that prior to the um, referendum or or a few months back, it required a Freedom of Information Act in Australia for the full statement that underlay the voice uh, referendum. It's something called the Uluru Statement and the government was pointing everyone to the first page of that statement but it took a freedom of information request to get the full statement that revealed quite um, you know, ambitions for The Voice, including a treaty between First Peoples and the Australian state, uh, ambitions that I'm sure a lot in Australia would want to debate in detail and openly mm. rather than have to go through a freedom of information uh, request. Some of those Issues that were in the treaty or the proposed treaty were reparations, a financial settlement such as seeking a percentage of GDP, and um, a lot about decolonization or, or um, emphasizing the history of colonization. Again, really quite contentious issues that a lot in Australia might have different views on. And so all of those strands came out and they really felt to me, Ben, like they were the, the classic um accusations of one side by the other one side felt they had right on their side they had history on their side and the other side was the bad side they were clearly the racist side and it it, it felt again that 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 self-censorship that must be going on in a lot of those uh, corporations institutions that came out in support of it from individual um Uh, citizens of australia who had perfectly reasonable thought through reasons for their vote for no uh, as well as perfectly thoughtful reasons for yes it doesn't mean they're racist it doesn't mean um, that they are um, bad people and yet that seems to be the narrative that's sort of come out since the since the result came out so that's why i wanted to talk about it ben
1: well i completely buy the comparison um but but to bring us back um from the antipodes for a minute uh, the other thing that occurs to me about it is that um this this approach to multiculturalism that we've we've discussed um, it, it's been a running topic that, that keeps coming up uh, for obvious reasons. But this approach to multiculturalism of, of managing people via groups, via community leaders, via community forums, rather than having a relationship between the state and the individual subject or citizen—you yeah. um, know—that's that, that, something. Of course, people have different views about it. Um, but I would argue that um, managing people through their communities is intrinsically. Um, and inherently inimical to free speech because it creates a a system where the police, as in London, are not really applying the law in an even-handed or equal way. They're trying to maintain community cohesion and peace between different, you might say, different warring groups now. Um, And I think that... The, the 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 I mean what what the referendum is proposing, um, the introduction of this sort of communities based model of governing society, um, as I said, I think it it just is inherently contradictory to liberal values, um, and you know isn't it interesting as you've said in exhaustive detail that it's seen as the fashionable cause, um, and one suspects very little thought has gone into. Uh, you know in boardrooms about what the implications of this would actually be um but it it's bandwagon let's let's jump on it
0: and it's interesting because i i i think you're exactly right it's a really good example of a state saying let's let's uh, contract with the group and the representatives of the group rather than contract with and deal with our individual citizens all of whom are equal and are dealt with without fear or favor um yeah. The letter, that uh, so the First Nation leaders after the res- result of the referendum went away and had a week of silence and, and, and they, they, um, they flew a lot of their, their flags at half mast. And one extract from that letter really struck me as to sort of how hard these community leaders bite back at individuals. Um, one sentence they said, the truth is in this letter, the truth is that the majority of Australians have committed a shameful act whether knowingly or not, and there is nothing positive to be interpreted from it. And I thought, okay, I, I totally understand that, that people on the yes side of that referendum may feel like that, may feel very personally hurt by the result, may feel betrayed by many of their fellow citizens, but to put in print in black and white that I actually believe there's n- it's, it's a shameful act I feel is yeah. it really reflects what you've just said, which is the group is biting back at the individual citizens. The individual citizens have a problem with them. And it comes back to this whole um, uh, Matt Goodwin view that the, the new elites, the new leaders, don't like the individual voters very much. And they don't like the fact that the individual voters do this thing. I don't know if you've come across this, Ben, but the individual voters go away and they vote <laughs> and they seem to come up with an answer that the elites didn't they, want
1: <laughs> it's crazy keep disgracing themselves and it and it's that and also it's politics as religion as well um with politics providing the good and evil dichotomy in daily life that religion used to provide no longer does um the so i think there's, there's
0: a strong element to that. yeah 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 So anyway, I thought I'd be very interested, actually, um, to hear from any listeners in Australia who might feel that uh, I've misrepresented either what was happening before the referendum or what was happening after the referendum. Obviously, I've been piecing together various things that I got interested in this and and followed through. it seemed to be a very interesting example of free expression in these current times, not in the UK, not in Europe. And that's why it fascinated me. But uh, if I've got it wrong, do do write in, do let us know, and uh, and and be interesting to hear from you. Um, but I think Ben, is there anything else you wanted to add to today? No, I think that's it for me. Uh, and
1: uh, we'll see you, so to speak, next time. Thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to uh, to go and have a look at the conversion therapy bill and, uh, and write to your MP. Um, As I said, very quick and easy to do and very much appreciated. And if you're not already a member of the Free Speech Union, do join and support our work. We are as busy as ever. I think we have about 115 open cases at the moment of people we're helping, uh, which is only possible because of the support of our members and donors.
0: So thank you. Thank you, everyone.